So this might actually come as a surprise, but I spend a fair amount of time um, following certain atheists, uh, listening to podcasts, reading their books, YouTube videos with debates, that kind of thing. Um, I like guys like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, um, and I really uh, like the late Christi uh, um, Christopher Hitchens. And um, I think the reason why I, I kind of follow some of these guys is the older that I get, the more I find myself curious in understanding different worldviews, um, especially like the, the worldviews that are like most or least like my own. Uh, I really like to, to find out more about them and understand where they're coming from. And, and honestly, Elder, really, one of the things that I, I've really enjoyed recently is just finding, uh, figuring out how people make meaning and find meaning in life. I was watching this uh, interview with uh, Richard Dawkins, and it was actually an interview with, um, do you guys remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Ben Stein, Bueller. Bueller. We literally just watched that movie like last week. It's amazing. I suggest it. Um, but Ben Stein a, a did a documentary, um, and he was represent. He's a, he's a Jewish theist, so he's a, a a man who believes in God. That he's he's a Jewish man, and um, he was interviewing Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist. Richard Dawkins is a, a British biologist um, who wrote the book The God Delusion, um, and he's one of the the. the prominent voices for atheism and, and what's been dubbed uh, right now the, the, the new atheist movement. Um, and he's asking, Ben Stein was asking him questions, and one of the questions that he asked Richard Dawkins is, he's like, okay, so, so let's just say you die, and God is real, and, and you're facing, you know, like you have to meet your creator in a sense. Um, and, and God, you know, basically God's like, dude, you know, what the heck, you know, you, you had all of these, you're a really smart guy, obviously, and you miss me, like, what, what's going on, and Richard Dawkins kind of just, in the interview, he kind of just smiles, and he's like, I'm gonna, he's like, I'm gonna go with, with Russell Bertram, uh, Bertram on this, and Russell Bertram's a, uh, a mathematician from the 20th century, atheist as well, and he was asked a similar question, as to, like, you know, like, what, how would you explain your disbelief to, to God, and, 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 um, Russell Bertram's response was simply this. He said, sir, why did, you why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? Why did you take in? I don't think Russell Bertram used the word take in there. Sir, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? And I think that that, that objection, that question, or that statement is, is an important one because it's, I think, for, from what I understand of, of atheists and, and, and maybe strong agnostics, uh, people who are not sure what they believe about God or if, the, if God is knowable at all, I think that maybe the number one or maybe the foundation of their skepticism is that statement. Where is he? Where is God? Why has he gone to such great pains to hide himself. Um, and honestly, I, I don't think that that question is reserved just for the atheist or the strong agnostic. I think, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all ask that question one way or the other at some point in time in our lives. Even if we grew up in church or if we're not sure what we believe about our own faith, uh, we would consider ourselves a person of faith or a strong Christian. It doesn't matter. I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, Ask that question at one point in time. Okay, God, if you're there, why are you so hard to find? <laughs> What's with the mystery 
Why the distance? And if you're a student in the room, like, and if, if you're a student in the room that grew up in church, you might find yourself asking these questions. Like, you, you, there comes a point in time where you're growing up as a kid, and, and, and your, your parents tell you things, or your teachers tell you things, and you take them as concrete, you take them as black and white and real. And then as you start thinking for yourself, you're like, wait, but that's what I've been told. Do, do I believe that? And I think there's just this natural progression in, in all of our journeys of faith to where we wonder, okay, if God is real, why can't I see him? Why can't I experience him? Why, why you know, there's other things that I can explain, you know, um, in life, and, and, and we can reason, but I can't, what about, what about God? And at, a, at the first glance, I think the Bible might seem like it's not much help. Because again, if you grew up in church, you grew up in Sunday school, you're, you, you're very much maybe familiar with story after story of the miraculous, of the supernatural, of God doing things, of God speaking with his people, dwelling with his people, interrupting their lives, right? Those are the stories that we grow up hearing where God is present, it's, it's seen or heard or known or felt, it's tangible to the people in the Bible. And if you're like me, you get a little jealous. You're like, I, I could use some of that. And maybe, maybe, in fact, you've thought this. Maybe you've prayed this before. Lord, if you're real, can you give me a sign? <laughs> I'd, like to, you know, I'd like to believe, but I just, I'm not quite sure. And if you read the Bible or if you go to Sunday school, you'd be like, man, those are a bunch of lucky people, but that's a long time ago. And that's not my story. That's not my experience. But you see, the thing about that is what we have to keep in mind is that's only half the Bible. <laughs> Those stories that may, maybe church leaders are to blame for this because we like to preach about the miraculous and the supernatural and the big things. In Sunday school, you know, like, like it's, it's about the stories of old and the Noahs and the Moseses and all of the, you know, these characters that do amazing things and God's doing big things. And, there's, you know, and those are good to listen to. And those are good. Don't, I'm not knocking them, obviously, correct? But what, what we can't lose sight of is that's only half the Bible. The other little half of the Bible is stories of absence. For every story that, uh, that, that highlights the presence of God, there's a story in the Bible that, that's, that's talking, that, that rolls us around in the absence of God. For instance, Moses, who saw all sorts of big, God do big things, but before that, he didn't see really any of that big stuff until he was 80 years old. The first 80 years of his life, he did something, in his early years, he did something big, something, something bold for God, but it was rash. He stood up for his people and killed an Egyptian man, if you're familiar with the story. And then he gets scared and he runs off and he's in the desert for 40 years probably wondering, where the heck is God? Is he real? You know, you got guys like David. David who is very honest <laughs> with his experience. David who, who experienced God's presence, who, who slayed Goliath. You know, like, and you know, like, again, David, David's a great example of this. If you only take David's, half of David's stories about him killing Goliath or becoming king, you could say, man, see, God was present in David's life, and yet David wrote this psalm. Check this out. He says this. He says, how long, this is Psalm 13, 1 and 2, how long, O Lord, how, will, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There's Bertrand Russell's word. You know, why have you taken to, you had such great lengths to 
hide yourself? How, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? Will the Lord reject forever? Will he show, never show his favor again? And if you're reading this, it's almost like you're reading, like it's like you broke into somebody's journal. You get to glimpse into somebody's really personal struggle. And what's interesting is it wasn't, David decided, like, that probably was his journal at one point in time, and he decided, no. What's interesting is those are the first two verses of Psalm 13. Right above the verses is, is called the ascription, and it says a psalm of David, and it says this, for the director of music. So David is wrestling. He has this point in time where he's in his life where he's like, God, are you there at all? How long will you forget me? And not only does he decide to share it, he's like, no, let's not just share this. Let's put this to music. And let's sing it in church together, shall we? Why? Because David knows that this is part of the experience. Just as important as God doing the big things is just as important as God doing the miraculous things. There are also times where God feels distance and he wants the, the people to know, hey, this is part of the walk of faith. So let's sing this together, shall we? He wants us to know that this is part of the faith experience. I could go on and on and on, but like, let's not forget least of it, like fast forward to Jesus, the Son of God, when he's hanging on a cross. And not only is he hanging on a cross, then this is the will of God that he would do this, but, but not only is he hanging on the cross, he, he's, he, he doesn't feel, not only is he dying this horrible death, but while he's dying this horrible death, he does not feel the presence of God to the point where he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, if there was any time that Jesus needed the presence of God, it was right then and there. And there's reasons why that happened. I won't go into them now. But that's the reality. That's the reality for every person, including the Son of God. There are times where God feels distant there's times where God feels absent. And in those times, doubt arises. And what I want us to, to, to know and take away from this, the point I'm trying to make, and this is honestly, I feel like this is kind of a tenant of our, one of the tenants of our, our church here at CLC, is there is room for doubt on the journey of faith. There is room for doubt on the journey of faith. The journey of faith includes doubt. Doubt is not only just a part of faith. I actually think it's an important and necessary part of healthy and true faith. Because the way that God has set this up, we are going to encounter things that we do not understand, we cannot comprehend. We're asked to believe in a God that we cannot see which means there's going to be times, naturally, when we stop and ask, is this real? Are you with me? Are you even there? In other words, there's going to be times in your faith and in mine where we take roll call with God. We say, okay, God, present or absent? 
because it feels like you're absent right now. Oh, there's, this, the, there's one book in particular in, in the Bible, one book in the Old Testament that in this regards about the absence of God stands out among the rest. Um, in this book, there are no miracles. There are no voices from heaven. There's no interaction of, with God with his people. In fact, there's no, in, on the other side, the, the people of God, there's no recording of them praying. There's no worship. There's no sacrifice. In fact, this, in this book, the, the word God is actually not even mentioned at all. And yet, somehow, this book made itself into the Bible, which is, is fascinating. Is that, isn't it interesting that the, in the Bible there would be a book that doesn't even include the word God or, or the act of prayer? The book is the book of Esther. The year is 460 B.C. The empire belonged to the Persians, and sitting on the throne was a man named Xerxes. Now, you might recall Xerxes from your Western civilization or world civilization class as, as the king of Persia, also known, one of his monikers was the king of kings. Or you might know Xerxes from this, the movie 300. The bad guy, the weird, creepy guy in the movie 300. Um, in 300, if you haven't seen it, I don't know if I would suggest it, but it's a, it's a movie about uh, 300 warriors um, Spartan warriors that, that wiped out thousands and thousands of Persians led at the, you know, at the helm was King Xerxes. And <clears throat> um, uh, now, whether that actually happened, 300 Spartans defeated that many, or whether the Spartans had eight packs or not, you know, that, that's, that's to, you know, up for debate. But Xerxes was a real figure. Sure enough, he was a, it was a real empire that he uh, ran and Biggest one. Um, right in the middle of the Persian Empire was the nation Israel. Um, and, and, and Israel, honestly, to Xerxes would not have been, it would have been like kind of a footnote in what he took over. It would not have been a big deal. <clears throat> they would, he would not have considered Israel one of the major players on the world stage at that at time. Yeah, sure, maybe Xerxes would be aware of uh, a guy named King David hundreds and hundreds of years ago that, that reigned and, and you know, expanded their empire a little bit. And King Solomon, who built the temple, and then Nebuchadnezzar, one of his pro pro predecessors, destroyed that, that temple. And he might have known that from his history classes, but he would not have found it all that interesting. Um, Xerxes would not have taken much interest. And actually, we'll kind of see that in the story today. He doesn't take much interest in the nation of, of, of Israel or the Hebrew people. But what he does take interest in is a woman named Esther. And we come to know Esther in, in, this, in, in the book of Esther. We, we come to know her, as her name is Esther, but her real name, her Hebrew name, is Hadassah. Um, but nobody knows that. Uh, she, 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 is, um, she has an uncle named Mordecai, um, you know, baby name open for grabs there, for sure. Any takers? No, no, okay. Um, she had an uncle named Mordecai. And, and like most exiles, most people who had uh, probably been taken over by the Persian Empire that were not Persian, 
they probably lost a lot of their family. So her, their, her mom and dad are no, nowhere to be found in the story. We're, fi- we're, we're told that she's raised by Mordecai, her uncle. And during this time, um, Xerxes, King Xerxes, gets mad at his, <coughs> his queen and basically fires her. And then decides, hey, I need a new queen, so let's hold a beauty pageant, and the winner of the beauty pageant will be my bride. And so this is enter Esther. Esther was beautiful, um, and she was taken into this contest. And um, it it says that she, that basically King Xerxes fell in love with her and chose her as his queen, um, and she became the queen. Um, And 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 then the text makes it very clear that Mordecai had told Esther, "Hey, if you become queen, do not." tell anyone that you're Hebrew. And we don't, it doesn't really exactly tell us why that is. It doesn't, the text doesn't explain why, but it becomes very clear. It's because of, of racist reasons. It's because of there, there was, there was um, um, discrimination and, and there was prejudice within the empire against the Hebrew people. In particular, there was one man named, named uh, Haman who was an, uh, known as an Agagite or uh, from the tribe of Amalekites, which honestly makes no sense to us if you're reading this. But if you, if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, the Amalekites were fierce enemies with the Israelites for a long time. And all of a sudden, this, this guy, Haman, raises to a prominence within the Persian Empire, becomes probably like a, a governor of an area, um, finds favor with Xerxes and, and has power. And he basically builds it as a platform or one of his platforms that he wants to, he, he, to get rid of the Jews. And part of this is in, in the story Mordecai, Esther's uncle, um, at one point in time, Haman gets this promotion. He's, he's now like the regional whatever. And he's like, hey, now that the regional whatever, let's just make it a practice that when I come around, you bow to me, you bow down. And Mordecai wouldn't do that. He's like, no, you don't bow to anybody but God. Um, and so he doesn't bow down to Haman. And that just burns Haman's hatred and prejudice and racism all the more towards the Hebrews. And that's kind of where I want us to pick up the story today. Haman gets in control. He comes to to King Xerxes and Esther. This is in Esther chapter 3. By the way, before we, we dive into this, I would highly encourage you, I think the, the book of Esther is probably 12 or 14 chapters. It's very short. You should read this on your own time. This is a book worth reading. I can't go into all the details, but this is a fantastic story. Um, so I'll kind of, I'll, I'll give you, I'm giving you the Cliff's Notes version. And with the information that you have when you, when you sit down and read it this week, if you do, you'll find it a, a, a really good experience, I think. This is in Esther 3. It says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, Hey, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your, your kingdom. Whenever you talk with a king, you talk to him about his kingdom. You know, this is your king. This is, you know, like you, you got to kiss up a little bit. Um, of your kingdom who keeps themselves separate. There, meaning the, the Hebrew people, their customs are different than those of all the other people. And they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest. Uh, this has nothing to do with me, king. It's, it's in your best interest not to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, 
let a decree be issued to, I don't know, should we destroy them? <laughs> and I'll give you, oh, and in, in turn for your hassle, <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous, in turn for your hassle, I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrator uh, for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, which is the sign of authority, right? This, um, he took his, 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 uh, this ring off his finger. He gave it to Haman, saying, you now have my authority to do what you want. Um, and gave it to Haman, son of that guy, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he says this, keep the money. I don't care, the king said to Haman. And do with the peoples as you please. So Haman comes before King Xerxes and like, they're just, di- you know, there's this group of people, they're different than us. They don't, they don't look at, the, they, they don't like us. So let's just, you know, I think you know, since they're different than us, they're dangerous. This is, we've seen this happen, right, in history. Um, so let's just, let's just get rid of them. And then let's not deport them. See, you can't just deport people like that because when you're trying to take over the known world, you're going to run into them again, right? A big problem. <laughs> so let's just get rid of them. Um, to which I know as I was reading this in prep for, for this week, I'm like, man, this in some senses seems so foreign to us. To just, you know, like, hey, king, let's just, it's so nonchalant, right? It's so like, it's not a big deal. Sure, you just keep the money. It's so flippant that it could feel distant, like, th- yeah, that's so ancient, like, those people were so weird back then, and then I was thinking about it, and I was like, no, it, we, before we get too self-righteous as modern people, right, <laughs> let's not forget Germany in 1940, or, or fast forward even closer, Bosnia or R- Rwanda in the 90s, Darfur, Sudan in, in, in 2000s, or right now in places like Syria, where this, this stuff is happening, examples of, of people getting this signet ring and carrying out orders. It, it, it happens. It, it, it's, it's, incre- it's, it's incredibly evil. It's sad, but it, we're all too familiar with it within history. And that's what happens here, right? Just like that, Haman is able to secure the authority to annihilate some people. He, th- we, this, uh, all of a sudden, a racist man is one s- decision away, one step away from being able to wipe out a, a people group. And literally, it's fascinating within with in the story, he literally does this thing where he kind of rolls a dice to figure out what day he's going to do it on. And then he sends out RSVPs throughout the, the, the empire for people to join in, <laughs> not not to the party, but for the genocide. It's incredible. It's, it's, this, it's really sad. The date is set, invitations are sent out, and obviously Mordecai and Esther learn of what's going on, that there's going to be this triangulated attack throughout the empire on all Jewish people um, by the authority of Haman and ultimately the authority of Xerxes. And Mordecai steps in. He's like, okay, Esther, um, you got to do something about this. Like, you need to, you need to act. 
I mean, you're you're like the only one. You're our only hope. You like this is this is your husband, the king. But it, it, see, it's a different kind of relationship than your typical modern wife husband relationship. Can we all see how it'd be a little different? Like, like to the point where the last queen that that got him mad, she almost got killed. She definitely got fired, almost got killed. You can't just go walk into the king's presence anytime you want. That's literally, if somebody did that, you, he could kill you. And Mordecai says, you need to go talk to the king. And Esther's like, may I remind you, it's not that simple. I could die. I, 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 could, I could lose everything. Look at verse 12, verse, chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. He's like, you know, listen, don't think that, that because you are in the king's house, you alone out of all the Jews will escape. You know, like, yeah, the king doesn't know that you're a Hebrew, that you're Jewish, but don't think that you're going to escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Mordecai makes this statement of belief, uh, of faith. I believe relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your, fam- your father's family will perish. And who knows, and this is, this is the quintessential line, of this is actually probably the most famous line within the book of Esther, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Isn't that cool? Kind of gives you goosebumps, like, ah, you know, like Esther, this is your time. Esther, could it be that the whole reason that you're here was for such a time as this? That this is your moment. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law and I might lose my life. And if I perish, I perish. So she resolves to do something about this. But I don't know about you, but as I read something like this, you can I feel like you can feel the spiritual angst, right? Like, let's, let's, uh, all right, I'm going to do this. We're going to fast, which is a spiritual thing. Notice they don't mention prayer. <laughs> We're going to do, I'm going to do this. But if I perish, I perish. In other words, it feels like it's all on me. Now, she doesn't say anything about God, you know, and, and, and pray that God will deliver me, or pray that God will give me favor in Xerxes' eyes. No. The, the question hangs in the, the room, like, like an elephant in the room, like, where is God? Honestly, when I read this, it's kinda, I feel like that's the narrative, is, is what everybody's thinking in the back of their heads, but not saying, is where is God? And I think it's so important. Again, we're reading the Bible. And, and I think when we read the Bible, we, we think of the characters and we, we elevate them. Well, they're in the Bible, right? 
their context, like they, they probably saw God do big things. They probably had a lot more to work with maybe that I did. And in Esther's case, this is actually just far from true. What all es- what, here's what Esther had to work with in, in this situation. Not only has she never been to the, not only could, could she not go to the temple, she'd never been to the temple. She, she was born in slavery. She was born, like she knew some of the, like they didn't have the, the, the scriptures. They didn't have the Psalms. They didn't have, the, we have a lot more of her heritage in our hands today while holding the Bible than she did. She didn't have much to work with. She didn't know, she maybe heard rumors of the stories of old, but ex- as far as experiencing them, God seemed pretty distant. God seemed pretty far away. For all intents and purposes, God had been silent her whole life. And so it feels like it's all on her. If I perish, I perish. And honestly, that's kind of what it feels like when you and I step out to do something brave, isn't it? It's kind of what it feels like if you've ever done something in faith, it kind of feels like this. It feels like, uh, I I don't know where God is in this, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is what it feels like before you go and do something, like like I say, God has promised this, and I'm going to believe that to be true. I'm going to take it on faith that that's true, and I'm going to act accordingly. And if I perish, (laughs) I perish. (laughs) That's what faith feels like. And that's where I want to cut it off for today. I actually want to stop reading right there today. It's kind of, it's like a cliffhanger, like Stranger Things style. Like, I want to leave it like that. Like, just, like, kind of leave you like, oh, man, like, I need something more. Um, I want to leave it there. But I want to reassure us with the big idea that I believe that I believe that this is the big idea for the whole the, the whole book of Esther. And it's the big idea for this series. Um, and I want to reassure you with this uh, big idea. It goes like this. God's silence need not be taken or mistaken for absence. God's silence in life. What we learn through, what we're about to learn through the, the book of Esther and so many others God's silence does not need to be mistaken with his absence. Silence does not mean that he's absent, that he's absent. The problem is, is his silence, it creates doubt, doesn't it? When when we don't know where he is, we don't know if if he's real. We don't know if he's listening to our prayers or, or answering our prayers. That creates doubt, and, and, and so the, the big question is, okay, so then why does God stay silent? If he wants us to believe in him, why would he stay silent, which could create doubt? And, and see, the lesson from the book of Esther is, is not only is uh, silence cut, uh, cuts both ways. When, when we come up against God's silence or his seeming absence in our lives, it can, it can work one of two ways. It can create doubt in our lives that destroys faith. 
But I also believe that silence also creates the best opportunities for faith. And that's why they're so important. See, honestly, um, God's silence actually creates room for our faith. It, it creates opportunities for us to step out in faith that would not be there otherwise. And, and the, more th- the older that I get, the more that I believe that nothing brings joy to God more than when you and I act in faith. Like, like I, I, think, I think when we sing songs to him and worship him like that, I think that brings joy to him. I think when we do things like read his word and, and pursue him that way, like, like that brings joy to him. When we're kind to one another, that brings joy to him. And I, I was thinking about this in kind of a, a dad, in, in, in respects to fatherhood. Like, yeah, when I see my kids treating each other well, that's, that's awesome. Right, it makes me smile. Um, if my kids walked around the house singing my praises, Dad is great, Dad is good, you know, like that, that would make me happy. But you know what might bring me the most? I was thinking about it this week. I, you know what, honestly, out of everything, might bring me the most joy is, you know, you know, my my kids are young, six, eight, ten, and they're just embarking on this age. Like, like they're at the stage where. Okay, they're they're past this stage. I was gonna say they're at the stage where they they listen to me. You know, like what Dad says. You know, what Dad says is like, oh, okay. You know, they, that's that's long gone. But but it's it's still semi true. And and those of you who know, like I, I did middle school ministry and high school ministry for years and years. And it's like the older they get, the more it's like, I don't believe you. You know, like like they they just question us, right? And that's part. It's a natural part of growing up. I was, I was thinking of a scenario where, like, if my kids ever got into a situation where they knew that I, I, I wouldn't approve of, of them doing or, or being, being with these people or doing something, if they were to call me and say, hey, Dad, I, I, I know um, I'm, I'm over here. I'll explain later, <laughs> but can you come get me? And I go pick them up, and, and, and they get in the car. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, um, I was in a situation that I don't really understand it, but you've warned me about it, and, and I trust you. And so I called you. You know how fast I would get there <laughs> if my kids put their faith in me like that? Do you know how much joy that, like, yeah, sure, it'd be cool if they sang songs to me. It'd be cool if they got along with each other. But that right there, that kind of faith and trust that would be so much, like that, that I want more than anything. Why? Because that kind of faith and trust, that's what builds relationship. And I think that that's what's going on in the world that you and I live in, where God does seem absent. We can't see him. We know stories, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe you do have, maybe you have points in time in your life where you did encounter him. You had an experience where you felt his presence. And that's important to you, but it feels like it's a long ago thing. See, I, 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 think, I think that that type of faith, when we step out in faith like that, God gets really fired up. I, I think, honestly, that's the whole point. That's why 
At times he seems distant. At times he seems absent. Because he knows that by giving, by sometimes being silent, it gives us the opportunity to express true and real faith in him. I mean, think of it. If you were with your kid the whole time over their shoulder, like, no, don't go there, don't go there. He never left the side of your children, right? Would they be growing up on their own? Would they have, any, would they have faith in you, or are they just doing what you say because you're always you know, in their ear bugging them? I think there's something similar going on in the faith journey with God. He's not afraid to give us distance. He's not afraid to even at times be silent to give us space to express bold faith. Yes, the silence can cut both ways. It can cause crippling doubt. But it also can create opportunities for courageous faith. God's silence need not be mistaken for absence. Um, In the end, this book is all about God's sovereignty. It's this theological belief that God is sovereign, that, that God is in control and, and, and has been in control and will be c- in control throughout time. And he's, it's, it's God's sovereignty is about his ability to bring about his will in the world without forcing it upon us, right? But rather inviting us into it, inviting us to join into it. And what we're going to find through, through Esther's story is some of God's most powerful moves and co- most powerful moments are punctuated by the fact that he doesn't say anything at all and that his name is not even mentioned. So I'm going to leave it there for this week. Come back next week. We continue this conversation. We continue the story. But if you've ever wondered, you know, how can anybody believe or have such confidence in God? And, and, and maybe it's it like you're, you're jealous, you're, you're envious of, of somebody else's faith of like, man, it just, it's like it's, un, it's unshakable. You know why? It's not because God has been present in their life all the time, just whispering in their ear, go left, go right, eat, eat the chicken, not the fish. You know, like just, it, it's, not, it, it's nothing like that. It, it's their faith, the strength of their faith was probably built on time and time again of, of, of God's, of, of absent, of seeming absent, of God being silent, and they s- took a step forward in faith. And as a result, God built that faith. God proved himself faithful. And they came away all the more confident. See, our faith is built as we seech, seek God, we give generously, we, we, we're obedient. This is what we're going to find throughout the series, when we trust God's promises. But what I want you to know for today is God's silence need not be mistaken for absence. Let's pray.